Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here.、Um, this is going to be fun. I think we're the most colorful panel of the whole conference. In many ways. In many ways. Are you talking about skin or clothes? All the ways. All the ways.、Okay. All the ways. <laughs>、um, no, thank you all for being here for me to interview, and thank you all for attending.、Um, this is a fun panel because there's so much change around Cape Coral Capital, and I really want to start with you, Mitch and Frida.、Um, you know, ten months ago. You decided to leave the firm in the investment decision-making sense, which came as a surprise to so many people.、Um, I know you said it's always been part of the plan, but talk to me about the timing of that decision. How did you know it was time to step back for the new generation? Well, we've been working with these two amazing investors for over a decade. We're old, and、uh, we're. Trying to scoot off stage, but here we are on stage,、um, and it was really the time. Brian and Ulili, we've been talking about this for a while. When you're ready, we're out of here.、Um, and they said to us that they felt like they were ready and that they were going to go raise a fund.、Um, and so we're thrilled to hand the reins to them. We are an LP. We're a sizable LP. Thanks for the. They've、money. been. <laughs> they've been running the fund. They've made every investment decision for two years、uh, with their team, with people that they hired.、Um, it's their fund. What was the reaction to both of you saying that out loud for the first time? Because I knew that they were behind the scenes, and maybe founders knew that. But to the public, to to other investors, how was the reaction to when you stepped away? Well, I think people who knew us best knew that this had been the long-term plan, you know, all along. I mean, working with them for a decade, they've both been partners for a number of years. We saw when we founded Capor Capital, it was a kind of radical experiment that you could、uh, invest for social impact and get top returns, and we'd established that. And now it was ready to go to the next level and new, new leadership, new generation, raise outside capital. And so, people who knew us knew the outlines of that. They were not surprised. Other people, I think, you know, were surprised just because this kind of succession is and succession planning is just generally not done. It's not talked about much in VC stepping away, which I always wonder why. Well, I think we have to ask the audience. You know, we've had a completely different experience at Cape Coral Capital. I mean, we were probably noisily laughing backstage.、Uh, there hasn't been. We've had our disagreements, of course, but there hasn't been like daylight between our decisions. There's there aren't wedges to be, you know, put between us. We share a deep conviction about the kind of companies that we want to back.、Um, we are looking for companies whose core purpose. Tech startups close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome for communities of color and/or low-income communities. That has been a hundred percent shared.、Um, we are looking for top financial returns. We've achieved them,、uh, and we've been working as a partnership. So, if somebody really, really, really wants to invest in a company, we say, "Look, you're my partner. We'll back you." Let's talk about the other big change, which is both of you in charge out loud and raising capital from external partners for the first time. I would love to hear how you knew it was time to do that and why you really wanted to. Starting with you, Lily. Yeah, no, I'm one. Thank you for passing the baton. I think the interesting thing, especially as a black woman, if you look at not just black women, but when women are brought into leadership roles, 
you know, nine times out of 10, women are brought into companies who are in the midst of chaos and expected to, to fix it. That's when, you know, women get their chance at bat. And so to be elevated at a time where Capor Capital was actually in a very great position and they could have continued on the same path um, because they, you know, Mitch and Frida experienced much success. It was amazing to receive, you know, the baton and have it passed on. And they've been so innovative, I think. So the, the main pressure was how do we continue um, to build what started as an innovative company? And, we, you know, venture is such an innovative space, but I think Capor Capital has been unique because we've gone beyond and done things differently from day one. And Brian and I's goal is to continue that tradition. Um, and so that's really where I felt the pressure was like, how do we continue to, to make waves in a positive way and create spaces and make venture more inviting, more inviting to people who traditionally have been excluded? Yeah, to add to that, I would say, Mitch and Freddie, you've created the platform, right? And so when we came about, I started as a summer associate at the firm. And so I spent the summer, came back, joined as an associate and kind of went up the ranks uh, more of the apprentice-based uh, biz business, and that's kind of how we run the firm today. I mean, we do we still have summer associates. They spend a summer with us, and we've invited some of them back to join full-time. Those are the core of what hasn't changed, even in the leadership change. Yeah. And I think what's true to us, right? And, like, we, we want to be true to ourselves, too. It's a weird question because I, there's so much good that the firm is doing, but I'm wondering when you both came into this leadership role, what you really wanted to change. Was there like an obvious thing that you were like, that we want to change, that we want to get rid of? And, or, you know, was it, was everything, has everything been consistent? Yeah, we wanted to uh, give away, or not give away, but <laughs> uh, write bigger checks. Which, okay. I mean, going back to your first question, like, what was the reason for the fundraise? Yeah. Um, we were very lucky that uh, we were writing initially for the first 10 years of the firm using Mitch and Frida's checkbook, which was nice, and we realized how spoiled we were <laughs> when we finally went out and, like, started the fundraising process. But, you know, the market changed, and we saw that fund sizes got bigger, and to really have the ownership that we wanted to, that cost more money. And so that drove one of the big decisions or the big changes uh, in terms of accepting outside LP capital. I think the other was we were intentional about fund size, right? And so if you think about the history of venture capital, there are roughly about 10 black-led funds that have raised over $100 million, and we're in that, that class now. And so when we went out, we wanted to build this institutional LP base, and so that was a, a huge change. It was the first time... Even though it's a fun three, it's, it felt like a fun one of building the LP base. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that because I feel like it's different in that it's you, you were new at fundraising but old in terms of track record. And so I want to hear how LPs understood that combination, if at all. Like, what were those conversations like? Yeah, they did it. Um, <laughs> I, I think, and even now, I mean, like, we we raised the fund. There were articles that were like, Mitch and Frida raised, and we're like, wait, no. Brian and Lily raised the fund. Um, and so when we were going out, people, it was like, well, how are you going to do this? And, you know, our fund too, the majority of the deals in that fund, Brian and I led. And so as Mitch and Frida said, we had started this process a long time ago. Um, so LPs didn't know how to place us. They still don't. 
Uh, you know, they're like, are you a first-time fund because it's your first time raising capital and it's the first time with you in the managing, uh, you know, partner role? Or are you a seasoned fund? So they really didn't know how to place us. I mean, in that process, we got a lot of derogatory remarks. Like, my favorite was like, don't you think you're only a partner because Mitch and Frida like you? And I'm like, uh... Um, well, I'm thankful that they like me, but, you know, the track record of companies that I've grown, um, you know, and their, their revenue kind of speaks that I actually know how to do this job. Um, someone, you know, another one of my favorites was um, a potential LP, didn't believe in our fund, but thought we would be good to teach um, their child how to care about the world and philanthropy. Oh my so he's gosh. like, instead of doing this fund, would you set up something for high net worth individuals, like the kids of high net worth individuals, um, to teach them to care about impact? And I'm like, that sounds like something you should have done as a parent and not me as an investor. <laughs> Go on. Um, no, I'm like, and so I, like, I think it was a lot. There was a struggle that I wasn't expecting. I, I think both Brian and I, we felt like we'd been doing this for 10 plus years. People would recognize the experience, the track record, and was just very surprised that they did it. Yeah, and, and just jumping on that, I mean, our first fund and our second fund were top quartile funds. And so we felt like we did the hard work. We proved, you know, fund one, we led 60% of the deals. In fund two, we led 80% of the deals. And so when we got to three, we were like, A, this is going to take us maybe six to 12 months to go raise. And B, we thought that we'd do essentially starting with the institutional base. And so, and that didn't happen, right? Like our first close was mostly Mitch and Frida as the anchor. Uh, we had uh, corporate partners and we had foundations and high net worth. And then it wasn't until we did that first close, went out to market, started investing in companies, and then came back essentially with our, our tier sheet of, here's what we've done in three, that we were able to get institutional LP base. And not a lot of emerging fund managers, not that you are all are that, have the chance to raise three funds and then go and raise. But Frida, it sounds like you would say too. Look, Brian and Lily know me well. Um, Mitch knows me even better. Um, <laughs> but uh, let me say, Mitch and I... Be, be, be blunt. I, know I what usually you're am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mitch and I sat in on maybe a handful of their pitches only when we were invited in, and it was usually an introduction that we had made. Um, I was appalled at what LP said. Um, and look, you know, I did training at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and lots of other places, so I've heard a lot of nonsense. I was not prepared for the blatant racism directed at Brian and Ulili with Mitch and I sitting on there. It, it just, it shook me and shakes me to this day. One of the calls that we were on, white woman, actually says, I'm so sorry we ran out of all of our black money. And I said, I'll take some green money. <laughs> Good for her, right? But there is no explanation. I'm trained as a researcher. I, we've invested in probably 30 funds. The stories, the white guys we've invested in raise their tens of millions four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks with nowhere near the track record that these two have. 300 pitches it took them. There's no explanation other than bias. I'm sorry, every other variable has been crossed off the list. What I was sadly missing from this morning's panels is looking, holding up a mirror to the VC ecosystem and saying, what are we going to do? 
we're missing so much talent, whether it's GPs or whether it's um, CEOs, founders. And let's, let's take this on. I mean, that's the question. I want to throw it right back at all of you, which is, what are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to do? And I think especially, let's say you don't have the resources of a K4 Capital and you don't have the chance to get to your third fund and then come back. Sounds like it was still very hard, but let's say you're on fund one. How do you, you, know, how do you navigate the space as an emerging fund manager today? I mean, I'll kick it off. I'll say we've got to change emerging fund manager programs, especially when you think about diversity. And so, you know, post the murder of George Floyd, we've now seen new vehicles that are stood up, $25 million, $50 million. And I think that it's well intended. But the issue is that when you go out to raise the question, it's like, well, why aren't you in the main fund? That's mm -hmm. the first question. A lot of it comes down to check size, as we heard on, on a prior panel today. You know, initial check size, 5 to $15 million. But if you're raising a micro fund under $50 million, that's not going to work, right? And so we need to change the amount of checks that can be written. Maybe it's a one to $2 million check. Uh, I think track record looks a bit different. Everybody doesn't have two funds under the belt. And so maybe you've been a scout or an angel. And so you've got to change the, I guess, the, the grading for who's a good GP. And until we do that, I don't think, I don't think the solution is going to be setting up side vehicles to solve this problem. Yeah. It, sorry, I was just going to say also just ch the big bias is when LPs see a black person, they think they just invest in black people. If they see a woman, oh, you're just doing a woman-led fed. We never see like, well, I guess we just, there is the assumption you see white people, they're investing in white people. I mean, we need to change that. <laughs> but I mean, there is so much of that bias. And I think, you know, the I've heard no, numerous times people tell black fund managers, oh, if you guys all each only can raise a small amount of money, why don't you all work together? And if you took the time to listen to each of them, they're investing in vastly, their theses are vastly different. And you would never tell like five white GPs to just all put their money together and, and do one fund. And so I think that's a big bias too by having such a limited scope that if you're black, Latino, native that that's the only thing you know how to invest in um and so don't say i mean i think that goes to the we ran of our black money it's the assumption that all black investors have that same like they are only going to invest in the same thing yeah I'm, i just i have a story coming out tomorrow actually about how female founders who only raise from v female vcs have a 2x less likely chance to raise a follow-on round and i think that statistic makes a lot of people uncomfortable because it sounds like you're asking diverse people not to work with diverse people but it's more complicated than that and i want to hear a little bit about how you take those conversations those moments where you're experiencing racism and bias and either turn them around or respond to them in a way that I guess fits into the venture capital ecosystem that does feel so focused on warm intros and connections and not offending people on both ends. I mean, yeah, how do you balance that, that inherent tension between, between those two things? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think if folks are, I, I'm probably the Frida of the Brian and Lily. <laughs> He's more the Mitch of the relationship in that I'm, I'm blunt because I feel like that person who said that, I don't want to work with them anyway. And I feel like so often, you know, GPs, when we're raising money, we kind of give up our power a little bit because we're asking for, for money. And so we're afraid to say something. But if it's 
if at the beginning, you know, someone says, I feel like I have to say something because they've probably come with that, those negative words to so many interviews and like so many people had to just let it go because, you know, they thought there might be a shred of hope to get some dollars from that person. Again, I, I also recognize like the position of privilege. We started off with a healthy uh, foundation with Mitch and Frida. So I kind of felt like I could speak up a little bit more. Um, but I think, you know, it's really on, you know, I call on other GPs who have been raising those larger funds and hear that to help support the, you know, the emerging managers who are dealing with this and say something because they have a lot of the power where we don't. Yeah. Mitch, I want to bring you in here too and hear how you, you know, you both invest in a lot of emerging fund managers and have helped seed some of the greats. Um, how are you doing due diligence on these fund managers and how are you looking at it differently than the rest of the other you know, fund of funds out there? So one of my favorite things I've been saying for a long time is that talent is evenly distributed uh, by zip code, but opportunity is not. And that applies whether you're talking about high school STEM students or founders or uh, would-be venture capitalists. Frida, credit to her on this, but a, a, a metric that we use a lot is that of distance traveled. This is an evaluating talent, both founders and GPs to invest in. Distance traveled as um, opposed to pedigree. When you look at somebody, you don't just look at what's on their resume. I mean, there is still a huge bias uh, in VC to looking for that, that Stanford thing or you were at Stripe. Or, in fact, that was this synthetic personality that was created on, on, uh, uh, on LinkedIn. I saw that. Uh, and, yes. you know, some analyst, uh, you know, said, oh, oh, yeah, I work with your colleagues at Stripe and we'd love to take a look at you. This is a made-up person. So distance traveled, on the other hand, looks at, well, where did a person start in life? And what barriers and hurdles have they already overcome to get where they've gotten? So take their story in their own terms, because the more you know about what they've already accomplished, given where they started, the more you're informed about their resilience, their, their grit, their creativity, and you wind up making a very different set of decisions about who to invest in when that's your yardstick. So that is part of our approach, both for, for founders uh, you know, and, and, and you know, and for funds. Uh, and over the last dozen years, it's just been a uh, eye-opener after eye-opener for me of rethinking my framework for how to make decisions, mm -hmm. who has talent, what counts as success, uh, and have come to understood that, you know, I, I mean, that most of us, and I'm talking about us, you know, privileged white folks, really just don't get it. We are in our own bubble. And it's only by exposure to a broader world and actually getting into people's lives and stories, you begin to understand there really is another way to do things. And it works. It actually works better. If I could add to that. So we have a book coming out in a couple weeks. Oh, prop. <laughs> there are postcards around. There's a QR code. If you fill it out, we'll send you a free book. But... There, it, it's stories of our Cape War Capital founders. Two of those companies that are in the book have done huge rages, raises this week. Bitwise Industries, based in Fresno. How many investors travel to Fresno to meet a company to do diligence? Fresno's the new Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> That's the headline. I'm going to start that, and then it'll be like a thing, right? I'm sure Andreessen will be like, we thought of it first. Anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Bitwise Industries, we just led uh, their $80 million round. Um, they started in Fresno. They expanded to Bakersfield, Merced, and Oakland before expanding to half a dozen other cities outside, underestimated cities, building tech ecosystems. Block Powers in the news, was it this morning or yesterday? Yeah. $154 million raise. What all, uh, Black founder, Bitwise's two Latinx founders. What they have are huge distance traveled stories. What they also have is a passion for solving a problem that was an enormous barrier in their lives. And they understand their communities. And if anybody looks at the demographics of this country, that's where things are going. That's where the problems that need solving are. I know the way that you define much of your portfolio is gap-closing startups. But I know in previous conversations, we've also seen the term impact investing be used to describe what you guys are all up to. I want to hear the latest on what you think that term is, you know, read as by LPs and the general investment community, and if it's even a term you like. Um, yeah, I'll start with you, Brian. I mean, when we went out, we would tell LPs we were an impact fund, and sometimes we wouldn't get in a meeting. It was, it was that bad of a word that we were impact. And this is after we published our results to show that we were a 3X TVPI fund. And so I, th I think it's changing. You know, 10 years ago when we made this switch, I think we all thought we might lose deals. And it, and it turns out, by far, impact is the number one reason why we win deals these days. You know, when capital is equal, founders want aligned capital. And we're aligned capital. We care deeply, not only about the business, but about who is this going to affect? And, and you know, we do health, we do education, we do fintech, and all of those areas impact this core to what they do and, and the companies that we back. And so we haven't changed our stance. I think to your question, the industry, there's more firms now that are impact firms, but everybody's got a different, a different definition of that. And so for us, it's kind of at the core. We want to make sure that as our companies grow, that the impact won't change or fall off. And so we don't do things like a Tom Shoes model where you buy one, get one free because we know when, when you hit a recession, those are the first things to change. And so now you got to buy 10, get one free. We just want great products at affordable prices that people can use. And that's essentially what we invest in. Let's talk about the downturn for a second. Um, because you mentioned part of the goal was to write bigger checks. Are you still doing that? And has it made your job easier or harder that things are slower now? Yeah, um, the good thing is this, like, before we were shopping at Nordstrom's, everything was a little overpriced. Now it's like TJ Maxx and Marshalls. You <laughs> get those markdowns, still good quality companies. So um, I think the, we're not quite back to the valuations of eight, you know, 2018. Um, but you are seeing discounts. We're seeing folks come back to the market um, earlier, kind of at flat rounds. And so we're able to get into companies we may have passed on because we thought the valuation was too high, you know, last year or, or previously. Um, I think for us too, what we're seeing is that the importance of, of impact in terms of the companies, because when you start to hit a downturn, who suffers the most? And those are the people who are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, things like the crazy price of eggs start mattering. And so they look for ways to make their dollar go even further. And our companies are really centered around those folks. Um, Promise, one of our companies um, that help people pay, like set up payment plans for the utility uh, bills, has, has seen a spike. 
in terms of who's, who needs to use it and who's signing up as a customer base. Um, so that's kind of the good thing is we have companies that thrive in any financial environment. Do you see kind of the jump into entrepreneurship now that maybe with, with layoffs, but also with like just stability of assets in general being harder to do? I'm wondering kind of in terms of net new investments, if you're still finding that high quality of people who did have the distance traveled and can afford to take the risk in this market versus when it was maybe appeared to be easier. Yeah, I, I think we continue to see, I mean, uh, from a deal flow perspective, we're closing in on like 3,000 deals for a year uh, in general. And so we see a, a bunch of founders. I think one thing we've tried to be intentional about is where do we look for founders? And so we're investing, we have companies in Tulsa, we have companies in Philadelphia, we have companies in Miami, before Miami was like the place to be. Okay, key, key. Yeah. Back when Miami was Fresno. Yeah, back when we have companies in <laughs> Fresno, right? And so we're intentional about the demo days that we show up to uh, and the founders that we back. And I think that that helps for two things. One, from a pricing standpoint, we can get valuations. And two, we can lead. And so, uh, and these are great companies. Like when they go out and raise an A or a Series B, you know, you call it the top tier VCs are, are looking for these companies. These are the same founders that were building great things from the beginning. They just couldn't get a look. They didn't have the network. And so we try to come in and be the lead and bring that network to them too. And one other small trend that I, since you mentioned uh, Miami, which has all my buzzwords, um, are, are you guys in, investing in crypto and AI? Like, are both of those words words that we care about on this stage at all? I won't speak, but I'll let the investors speak. So we, we've done no crypto. What? Wow, okay. Zero. That's a story. Uh, but you want to talk about AI? <laughs> no, no, no. I, all right. Why are you trying to have... I'll, I'll, I'll say I was... we, are, we are inching our way into AI. Okay, so not jumping in. Not, yeah. not jumping in. Why? Well... I think with like the Web3, our big thing was like, well, how does this actually impact the people who need it the most? How does it impact the retail hourly worker, right? Like they're not in Web3 and they've got real problems and those are the founders that we want to back that are solving those problems. So we kind of sat out and- Well, what we saw too was we would look at a company um, would have one valuation, they would come back probably two months later and were like, we're on the blockchain and now our valuation is like 50 million more. And I'm like, so what changed about the fundamentals of the business and how is, you know, blockchain or AI or crypto essential to what you're doing? And very few companies that we've seen that they've actually integrated into the core of the product. And they've just added those buzzwords. It's like, you know how recruiters used to tell people like just copy and paste the, the job onto your resume so that it came up when you, you know, when they did an automated search for you. People are doing that to their deck. They're just cutting and pasting AI, crypto onto their deck. And like, it's it, a lot of times the majority that we've seen is there's zero value added. Let's end with some, oh, sounds I, like you want to I will say though that I think our sweet spot, and this is the work, Capital Capital and the other organizations that Fried and I have started, is at the intersection of tech and racial and social justice, there's a super interesting AI play about can you get good training data sets? Can you build models that actually reduce bias rather than increase it? Can you apply that to moderation in, in, in social networks, for instance? So I think not stuff that we may want to talk about here explicitly, but there are going to be some very big AI plays on that theme right in the sweet spot of, of what we all do. Thank you all so much. I mean, that flew by. Appreciate you all for talking about these important topics, and thanks up front for having us.
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.